are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. The Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse number 1 there, please. It says in John 9, 1, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. Now, what I'm about to say here isn't really part of the message except to say, the next question that you're going to see has got to be the nerdiest question that's ever been known to mankind. When we get to heaven, I want to meet this guy that asked this question and go over and say, Man, that was the, I, th- I thought I heard, du- that's the dumbest question that's ever been asked by anybody in the entire world. Here it is. It says, His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Wait a minute. Follow the chronology of this thing. The fellow was born blind. And here's a nerdy disciple saying, um, Who sinned that made him be born blind? The man? Yeah, when he was before he was out of the womb, he robbed a bank, idiot. I mean, somebody's always trying to figure out something to, you know, to, to blame somebody. Oh, you were born blind because you were a sinner. I was born blind because I was born blind, dingbat. And so the Lord kind of looked at him. I, I, I can just sort of see Jesus scratching his head thinking, Man, you, you, you know not what you're asking. And here's what he said. Jesus answered, verse 3, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. In other words, the Lord said, All right, you want to know why the man was born blind? He was born blind so that you can see the works of God manifest in his life. Do you understand this, that not everybody who has something bad happen to them, it's because they're wicked sinners? You know, the joke around churches, somebody comes in and they got a broken arm or broken leg or broken finger. Oh, boy, you, what have you been doing wrong that God got you? Uh, may not be anything at all. Maybe it is. Sometimes it is, but not necessarily. And the Lord said he, he, wasn't, he didn't sin and made him be born blind. His mom and dad had not sinned that caused him to be born blind. He was born blind so he could see the blessing of God on his life. Now, verse 4. God talked to Jesus talked about his mission on earth. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. I read that statement and I gave some thought to those three areas that Jesus mentioned there. First of all, he said, I must work. And then he said, while it is day. And then he said, the night's coming when no man can work. And I thought about that challenge that he was giving his disciples. He talked about this man that was born blind so that the works of God could be made manifest. And what he was saying to the disciples, there are some works out there that you need to be doing so that God can be made manifest as well. By the way, there's something in Lompoc that you and I need to be doing so that God can be seen by the folks that inhabit this city. Amen? The first thing that God said about this was verse number, verse number four. He said, I must work. You know, I find that if you don't make anybody commit themselves to anything, they're pretty, they're pretty open to do anything. Oh yeah, I'll come to church. When you start asking, hey, will you teach Sunday school? Will you run a bus route? Will you sing in the choir? Will you sing specials? Will you, will you usher? Will you, will you work? Will you vacuum? Will you clean out the parking lot? Will you paint the building? Once you start asking people to do stuff, man, they start thinning out. If it requires some effort on our behalf, then we start backing off sometimes. Not everybody, thank the Lord, but some people do. But I just want to remind you tonight that what Jesus said, our purpose and His purpose was in this world. Number one, He said, I must work. I remember the first real job I ever had. Now, my dad always made us work around. We, we didn't have a farm, but we always had horses and chickens and geese and stuff. You know, just enough to keep us busy and have chores we had to do. <clears throat> but the first real job that I, I, I did to get paid, I worked down at a farmer's house about four or five miles down the road out in the country. 
And um, I, I helped him milk the cows, not by hand. We had the modern uh, milking machinery and everything. And basically, my job was to go in and help him hook up the machines on the cows and, and clean up after them after they left. They always had a deposit they left behind, as you might understand. And um, those cows were amazing. They, a uh, certain time of the morning, a certain time of night, without anybody saying anything to them, without an invitation, without somebody going out there in a car, calling them in, they just lined up and started walking into the barn all by themselves. They went to their own stanchion all by themselves. They, they, they didn't have to have anybody say, all right, Mabel, you come over here. Betsy, you come over here. And, uh, and, and Gloria, come over here. They just went right in and went right to their same spot, you know, morning and night, morning and night, morning and night. And then you'd come by and you'd wash them down. You'd hook up the milking machines and then uh, clean up after they left. And they'd go on back out and graze in the pasture. That wasn't bad. I enjoyed that work, to be quite honest with you. I, I love being around the the, the, daddle, the, the, uh, the dairy cattle there and the, the dairy farm and enjoyed the work. But then summertime came. In the summertime, the farmer hired more help. In the wintertime, it was basically himself and a couple of his boys and myself. But in the summertime, he had to hire more help. Now, he said, Wally, he said, you've been working for me in the wintertime. He said, but in the summer, you've got to go to the bottom of the totem pole as far as seniority goes, because I've had these same boys working for me summer after summer after summer. They've been here longer than you have. They just, they don't work for me milking the cows, but they always work for me in the summer. He said, you're starting at the bottom. I thought, well, so what? You know, what, what, what are we going to be doing? He said, well, we're going to be doing something you haven't done yet. I said, well, okay, what's that? He said, we're going to be baling hay. And I thought, sounds like fun, no problem. Michigan, summertime, 90 degrees outside. Humidity almost equal to the degrees, 90% humidity. And mosquitoes, just huge mosquitoes. Their, their wings sounded like the beating of helicopter rotors when they came. I mean, it was horrible. And you'd go out through that field and they'd, they'd meet together and plan strategy how to get you. And he said, now, Wally, since you're the low man on the totem pole with your seniority, you're not going to get to do what the other boys do. I said, what do they do? He said, well, now there's this fellow. He's been working as the tractor. Okay. Sound like a fun job I was wanting to work myself up to, driving a tractor. He said, then there's the other two boys back here. They've been with us for this, this long. And he said, they, they work on the hay wagon. He said, and since you're low man on the totem pole, your job is to throw the hay from the ground that had already been baled onto the hay wagon. And then they stack it. And I thought, well, how hard can that be? So we got out there in the field, and the guy puts a tractor in low gear, and he has it real, going real slow, and driving real slow down the line. I'm walking by here, come to bale hay, bend over, throw it up there on the wagon. No problem. You guys that have ever baled hay, worked around farming, those wagons would come up to you about your hip, about that high, not real, not real tall, and it was no big deal. Now the, the bales of hay did weigh about 60 pounds, 70 pounds. Some of them that was real green would even get maybe 80 pounds. And you'd reach down there and you'd pick it up, but it wasn't too bad. I thought, hey, this isn't a bad job. I don't mind. But then those guys put one entire layer of hay on the wagon. So now instead of being hip high, it's sort of shoulder high. And you're throwing it up that high. Then they made the second layer. And then the third layer. And then the fourth layer. By the time they got to the fourth layer, I understood why the low man on the totem pole got my job. I'm down here trying to throw this thing as high as I could, and they're reaching down trying to grab it. My back is breaking, and the, the chaff would fall in your hair and your nose and your eyes and run down your T-shirt and your back, and it was awful. Mosquitoes were biting you, and flies, and gnats, and sweat, and heat, and humidity. It was awful. It was child abuse. Man, we've got several of those stupid wagons loaded up. Eight tiers high they loaded those crazy wagons. Got several of them loaded up. Pastor, or the, the pastor, he told my mind is, the farmer's wife came out there with a big pickup truck. In the back of that big pickup truck, she had two of these huge, giant, round thermos bottle, igloo bottle kind of things full of water. Man, we attacked her. I mean, she, we, before the truck stopped, we were at the back of the truck with our tongues hanging out. And, of course, you got all the water you want to drink out there and kind of got cooled down. And then the, then the farmer said, now, we got that field emptied out now, and we got all the wagons loaded. He said, now we're going to go to the second phase of, of, of baling hay. 
I thought, man, the second phase can't be nearly as hard as the first one. Glory to God. We got to the barn and I was introduced to the second phase. The second phase was that the low man on the totem pole, which was me, went up into what they called the hay mow. Do I have a witness out there with anybody? The hay mow. The hay mow is in the top of the barn, and the barn always had a tin roof on top, and the 90-degree sun beating down on that tin roof produced the effect of the first microwave oven. And I'm up there in that microwave oven called a haymow while the two guys that were on the wagon did the difficult task of dropping the little bales of hay on a conveyor. Big deal. My job was to stand at the top of that conveyor, and when the hay bale fell off the top of the conveyor, I picked it up, walked all the way across the barn, the back side of the barn, and started stacking the hay. Then by the time I got back, there were three bales laying there. And I'd run and stack those. Then by the time I got back, there were six bales laying there. Started piling up. Some of them would fall out the hole of the, uh, to the door of the haymow. And the farmer would yell at you and say some things to you in Greek. And I'd start working harder. And it wasn't all that bad. It was terrible. But then you started stacking the hay. And as it more and more and more came in, one tier, then two tiers high, then three tiers high, and then four. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Once you stack that hay three, four, and five bales high in that hay mow, and you start trying to walk from here all the way back there, you step in big, giant holes. You fall all the way down to your hip, and you pull your foot back out, and you start walking again, and the other leg falls down. It's horrible. It's five trillion degrees up there. You're dying from heat exhaustion. Your, your tongue is coated with enough dust to pave highways. They said, let's take a break. I said, well, if you insist. And I sat down here. Just about exhausted unto death. And I said, why in the world am I doing this to myself? Hands were bleeding from the bailing twine that you picked up. He said, well, didn't you have on gloves? Yeah, he had gloves, but they only lasted a little while. It wore through there. I was dying of heat. I was thirsty. My body ached. My back was broken. And I sat down and said, why in the world am I doing this? About that time, my answer came. Somewhere down below me, Mabel or someone down there, in answer to my question, why am I doing this, let out a real low moo. As if to say, you're doing this to feed me, pal. Keep it up. When she moved, I suddenly developed a tremendous hatred for cows. When I drive by McDonald's and I see 75 billion served, I want to applaud. Glory to God! Get them and grind them up and throw them in the fire! I hate cows! I don't mind the milk cows, but more the, uh, the, the milk. But I, tell you, I mean, that was work. I put that effort into working to feed a stupid cow. Do you know what? If building a church requires that kind of work from us, not many people will invest the effort. Follow me? What's the old statement that sort of separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls? If you're going to build a church here, what you're doing, and you're going to rise up and build in 93 as your pastor is praying and asking God for wisdom and, and getting it all organized for you to get your own buildings and property. I'm going to tell you something right now, ladies and gentlemen. Please hear me. It is not going to be easy. If you think you're just going to stroll out of here, get in your cars and have a big procession someday to your new property, and nobody's going to have to sacrifice to see that done, you've got another thing coming. Somebody has got to work. By the way, that somebody is you. 
No, no, that's the pastor. No, that's you. I remember a friend of mine who went down into Mexico. I told pastor a year ago, February, I went to Mexico for three weeks and every day I was preaching in a different church that the missionary had started down over the past 20 years. And I got into, I got in way south Mexico, almost down to Guatemala, down the very southern tip of the country. And I, I slept in, I, I slept in huts that had no floors and just, just dirt floors and, and, uh, by the way, not, not a bedroom and a living room, just, I mean, just a hut. It's all they had. Or vote. And if they wanted water, they had to go out in a community center there, a little, little town square and draw water out of a well. Had no refrigerators, had no electricity, had no lights, had no running water, had no sanitary facilities. We were immersed in that kind of lifestyle for three weeks. An evangelist friend of mine went down and many years ago and held a tent revival meeting in a little village like that. <laughs> Somebody had given him a tent and they were able to go down and put that thing up. And of course, the folks were glad to have anything to do, nothing else in town. We're talking about no, no stores. They had no stores. So when they put that tent up and started holding revival meetings, man, everybody came to those meetings. One night, a young man, 14 years of age, had, uh, when he was younger, had had something awful happen to him, was crippled from his waist down. Somebody came by and invited him to the church. He said, well, I have a hard time getting there. His only way around was he would drag himself around on his hands, use his hands and try to scoot his body and, and go like this and scoot his body forward and move his hands. And they said, well, well, we'll pick you up. We'll take you to church. Well, they took him to church on that, on that Tuesday night and, and that young man by the name of Juan trusted Christ as his Savior. Boy, he went back home. He was so excited to tell his mom what had happened to him. For the first time, he realized what it was to be a Christian. And, and, and they showed him from the Bible how to go to heaven. He, was so, he said, I want my mom to get saved. My mom's got to know about this. And he went back home and he said, Mom, I want you to go to church tomorrow night. It's the last night they're here. They're going to be going to another town. And Mom, you got to go to church tomorrow night. She said, Well, son, I, I'm so sick. And she was. She wasn't working. She wasn't able to get out of the house. She was hardly able to lift her head up off the little pallet in the corner of her little hut there. And he said, but mom, they, they said they would come get us. They'd take us to church. She said, well, maybe if they'll carry us there, son, but I, I can't go. I, I can't even walk. Juan waited at the door the next day. Something happened. One of the men that had been given the responsibility to go pick up some of the folks in his pickup truck had forgotten about going to that house. Something happened, and Juan looked out the door, and he noticed, man, they should be here by now. The service is going to start in just a little while. And he looked, and no one else was around, no one else there to help him, and he finally realized they're not coming. They forgot about us. And that young man went over to his mom, and he said, Mom, now listen to me. I know you're going to tell me you don't want to, but Mom, I got saved yesterday. I don't know how to tell you to do what happened to me, but they know how to tell you. But Mom, they're leaving today. It's the last. Sir, you got to go. She said, Well, son, I'll go if they come. He said, I don't think they're coming. He said, Mom, please don't argue with me. This is what you've got to do. Please don't tell me no. She said, what are you talking about, son? He said, Mom, I want you to roll over off that little blanket you're on there. I want you to put your arms around my neck and get on my back, and I'm going to take you to church. She said, I'm not going to do that. You can't do that, son. How would you drag yourself and me to church? I, I couldn't dare let you do that. And he began to cry. He said, Mom, please, please let me do this. Mom, I, you've got to get saved. Please. That dear mother began to cry. She said, Son, I don't want to do this, but if it means that much to you, if you, if you really want to. He said, Mom, please. That dear sick mother used what strength she had to roll over on her son's back. Pull herself up so that she got her arms around his, around his shoulders, around his neck, and just sort of hung on. That 14-year-old crippled boy using just the strength of his arms, started to drag himself and his mother out of that hut. He went through the town square, dragging himself down the road towards where they had the tent, about three-quarters of a mile outside town in a field out there. 
the rocks began to dig through his t-shirt into his chest and his little t-shirt began to tear and was cut rocks began to cut into his body and his little chest now full of the blood that came out of his those little cuts not not major not deep not life threatening but soaked his little t-shirt his fingers now were worn away his fingernails a couple of them had pulled loose from his fingers where he'd dig into the ground trying to pull himself and his mom one of the men waiting outside the tent to sort of help direct people as they arrived to the service that night said he looked down the road and he saw what he thought was, was kind of like an animal that was injured in the road or something. He was watching it as it struggled. Then he looked closer and he said, that, that's, that, that's, a, that's, that's a person. And he said, oh my soul, that's that little boy. I forgot to get the little boy. He jumped in his truck and drove down there was horrified when he got there and saw that it wasn't just the boy. It was a mother on his son's back. Little chest all bloody, fingers all bloody. The man said, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. We forgot. How can I ask you to forgive me? Picked him up and set him on the back of his little flatbed pickup truck. Turned around and drove him back to the service and backed his truck up so that they were at the back of the tent and they could watch the preaching. The evangelist friend of mine said that that little 14-year-old boy grinned from ear to ear when the invitation arrived. And his mama raised her hand saying she wanted to get saved when the personal workers went back and wanted to Christ on the flatbed pickup truck. So a big old tear streamed down his face as he said, that's what it's all about. That's why I wanted to bring my mom. I knew she'd get saved. Do you know... That's what you call working to get someone to Christ. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you have to go out here and disfigure yourself and maim yourself and injure yourself. But most of us in this room don't even so much as walk across the street to knock on the door to tell someone about Jesus. And God said, you've got to work. It is work. That's what will build this church. Work will build this church. Work will get you in your building program. Work will cause your job to be done. Work will continue to fill your buses and even get more and fill those buses. Work will fill your Sunday school classes. Work will pack out auditoriums like this. Somebody has got to work. It's not easy. Then the Lord said, I must work. But secondly, he said, while it is day. While it is day. In other words, he said, I want you to use what time you have. You don't have forever. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. What is life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a while and vanisheth away. He said, you've got to work while it's day. You know what that means to me? That means that you've got to use what talent you have. Boy, I meet people all the time. Oh, Brother Davis, I could never stand up there and preach like you do. Yeah, but could you just go out and tell somebody about Christ using what vocabulary you have? Oh, but boy, I've got to wait till I get a Bible college degree. No, the Lord might come before you get a Bible college degree. Use what talent you have while there's time to use it. We're always waiting for something better, for something more, for something bigger, for something easier. God said, don't wait. You've got to serve God while you can. You don't know about tomorrow. Preacher friend of mine that no longer is in the ministry used to be invited around the country quite often to preach. And I remember sitting one night in one of his services and heard this story that he told. Unbelievable. He's pastoring out in the east and the south of our nation and had preached one night on soul winning. Several hundred folks there in a Sunday night service in his own church and down the altar came many of them to say, to say all right, God, I, please help me be a better soul winner. I want to learn to be a better soul winner. I want to serve you while I can. And down the aisle came a fellow and Stood down in the front looking up the pastor, big old tears and his eyes coursing down his cheeks. And the pastor looked down at the guy and the pastor said, he remembered thinking, I wonder why that guy's here. 
His name was Bill. Everybody in town, small town, about 1,500 folks, everybody in town knew who Bill was. They, they liked him. They, they were kind to him. Uh, he sort of was like a community project. People took care of him. He, he, he was mentally a little bit handicapped and could not speak so that you could understand him. He'd try to talk to you. You had no idea what he was saying. The pastor remembered saying he looked down at old Bill standing down in the front, big old tears in his eyes, wondering, well, why is Bill down here? Bill can't win anybody to Christ. He can't even order anything off a menu at a restaurant. Nobody can understand him. And Bill motioned for the pastor to come down. Well, the preacher left the pulpit, went down, stood next to this man, and the pastor said, now, Bill, why are you coming? Bill tried to talk, and the pastor said, Bill, I'm sorry. I can't understand you. Let me ask you a question. Are you coming because you want to win people to Christ? Bill smiled and nodded his head up and down. The pastor said, Bill, do you understand, sir, that when you talk, people have a hard time understanding what you're saying? Bill nodded. He said, Bill, you're not going to be able to go talk to people. They can't understand you. He said, let, oh, he said, all of a sudden, he said, I just had an idea. He said, Bill, let me give you an idea. The pastor reached in his pocket and pulled out a handful of tracks that he carried with him and he handed them to Bill. He said, Bill, I want you to take these. I want you to go back there to the track rack at the back of the building like yours is back over here. He said, I want you to pick up a bunch of tracks and stand on the street corners. You won't have to say anything. Just hand out gospel tracks to everybody. He said, you think you could do that? Bill smiled and nodded, said something. Pastor didn't know what he was saying. He assumed he was saying, yes, I can do that. Service was finished, and pastor read off some of the decisions that were made, and he read off the decision that Bill had made to be a soul winner, and that he was going to be passing out tracks in town. Well, boy, Bill did that. The next day, I mean, breakfast time and lunch time and supper time, when the streets were the busiest down in the little small uh, town of 1,500 people, old Bill's down there passing out tracks to everybody. He passed out tracts all that week and all the next week and all the next week and all the next week for about a month until everybody in town had gotten one, two, three, four, five, seven, ten tracts from him. Everybody in town had gotten something from him. Now, they weren't mad at him, and, and, and you have to understand, the town liked Bill, and they were glad for him, but they got to the point where, man, I don't want to, I don't want to have to take another tract from him. They started walking across the street to go down another sidewalk and then come back around so they didn't have to pass by where he was standing. Bill understood what was going on. The pastor said, to this day, I don't know who helped him. I don't understand how he did it. I don't know if he wrote out his request to somebody. I don't know who paid for it. He said, but let me tell you what Bill did. Bill realized that he had reached about everybody he could. Small town. Everybody had gotten one or more tracks from him. And he reasoned in his mind, I'm going to have to get some folks that don't live in our town. Well, there was a, there was a highway that ran next to that little town. It was a highway sort of like um, 101 or Route 1. It was a busy highway, and people on that highway usually were not coming to this little town, but on their way somewhere else. And somehow, Bill got somebody, either to help him or they did it on their own. They went out there next to that road on a little hill there next to that major highway, and they constructed a huge white cross. They ran some electricity and put some floodlights on the ground and aimed it up to the cross so that when twilight or darkness came in the evening, that light would shine up on that cross. And people would be driving down that road. They'd gone down it hundreds and dozens of times. And all of a sudden, there was this something new that was there. And it caught their attention. Like, wow, where'd that come from? While they were looking at that cross, Bill would be standing there by the road. He would wave his arms frantically like this, and some people thinking, well, this guy needs help, they'd pull the car over. When they pulled the car over, he would walk slowly up to the car with a smile on his face, in motion like this to roll the window down. Some people a little nervous, you know, that they'd roll the window down, and he couldn't talk. So here's what he would do. He would hand the person that was by that window that gospel tract. And he would step back from the car and he would just point to that cross. And then he would point up to heaven. 
And then old Bill would point to his heart. And then almost with a look of question on his face, he'd point in at the passengers. He'd point at the drivers. And he'd point to his heart again as if to say, is he in your heart? And he'd reach in, he'd turn that gospel tract over, and the back of that gospel tract, like on many of yours, was a prayer to show you how to pray to ask Jesus to come into your heart. And then he'd smile. He'd step back and he'd wave. People would roll the windows up and drive on down the road. Did this time after time after time. My preacher friend was telling this story about his friend Bill in one of his sermon illustrations at a, when he was visiting as a guest preacher in another church like I'm a guest here. After the service was over, folks lined up to come shake hands with him and have him sign Bibles and what, what forth. And there was a very well-groomed, well-dressed couple waiting there in line, waiting at the very end. They came and said, Pastor, we waited at the end of the line because we wanted to make sure we had a few minutes to talk with you without interrupting anybody else. They said, can we have five, ten minutes of your time? We've got to talk. He said, well, sure. Well, we're set down in one of the pews on the side of the building. And the man said, Pastor, let me tell you a story. He said, several years ago, my wife and I weren't churchgoers, didn't love the Lord, weren't saved. He said, one night we got into one of our old-fashioned, knock-down, drag-out, verbal kind of fights, not physical, but hateful language with each other. And I told my wife what I thought of her, and she told me what she thought of me. And I finally turned and said, why don't you just pack your stupid bags? I'm going to take you to your mother's house and get, why don't we just call it quits? I'm sick of this marriage. And she said, that suits me just fine. So he said she got her suitcase out, said she was crying, and I stormed out of the room, went out and got the car ready, pulled out in the driveway and waited for her to come out. He said, I didn't even help her carry her suitcases. So she packed her things and came out, and he said, I had the trunk open. She came up, threw her suitcases in the trunk, slammed the trunk door down, opened up the passenger door, and got in and sat down. He said, I was sitting as far as I could against my my door. She was sitting as far as she could against her door so we didn't have to sit next to each other. And I reached down and turned the radio on real loud so she didn't have to think, didn't have to talk. So we got on the road, and I started driving her down to her mom and dad's house. Had every intention of pulling up in front of the house, getting out, opening up the trunk, setting the bags on the ground, and getting back in the car and driving off and leave her standing there. So our marriage was finished, full of hatred. Said so we're driving down the road with that kind of atmosphere in the car. So we got to part on the road that so I've been down it dozens of times, scores of times. Said, and something caught my eye that there's something different here. So I kind of looked over and he said, Preacher, I saw this big old giant cross there. Said, I remember thinking, well, where'd that come from? Who put that there? What kind of, what religious nut put that out there? He said, and then I saw this man waving his arms frantically. Like, man, something bad wrong. He said, instinctively, I just pulled my car to the side of the road and thought, well, maybe you all know, somewhere wreck or something died dying here. Motion for my wife to roll her window down. He said, my wife looked at me like, should I roll it down? He said, I said, yeah, go ahead. He said, after all, I didn't care. I was getting rid of her anyhow. You roll it down. He said, I don't know. If it's what the man heard, he said, I don't know if he could read the strain in our faces and the look you get when you've had a fight and you're mad at somebody. He said, I don't know if he was able to discern that when he looked in the window. He said, the man bent down and looked in at us and handed in a little piece of paper. He said, and he looked at our faces and our eyes. He said, all of a sudden, he just began to cry. He said, Pastor, he started crying. And he stepped back a little bit and he turned and he pointed at that cross that was all lit up in the night sky. He said, Pastor, then he just pointed up to heaven. Then he pointed at his heart. 
And then Pastor, he stepped in close to my wife's window again and he pointed at me and he pointed at my wife and he pointed at his heart again. He said, and he had tears that were dripping off of his chin as he pointed to a little prayer that was on the back of that piece of paper he handed my wife. And then he stepped back and he just sort of waved, but he was still crying. So my wife rolled up the window and I put the car in drive and took off down the road. My wife, he said, turned on a little map light that was in the car and started reading that paper. Said, Pastor, all of a sudden, she said, Honey, pull over. You've got to pull the car over. I think I've found what we need. He said, I pulled the car over the side of the road and I said, Well, what is it? She said, Honey, look at this. He said, Preaching the side of that road, we sat there and we read that piece of paper together. We turned it over and there was this prayer in the back. It says, if you want to get saved, you pray a prayer something like this. Just sort of an example prayer. Not you had to pray that one to get saved. He said, my wife and I bowed our heads and we cried and we prayed and we mingled our tears on the side of that highway. He said, and we got saved. He said, I looked at my wife and said, honey, you don't want to go to your mom's anymore, do you? She said, no, I want to go home. He said, I want you to come home. He said, this is what we needed. This is great. He said, I went back to that cross. He said, I wanted to find that guy to talk to him. He said, I didn't know he couldn't talk. I didn't know anything about him. He said, he wasn't there. He said, I drove by there several times after that just trying to find the guy. He said, I never was able to find him. I didn't know anything about him. He said, I knew nothing. Until I came to this church service tonight, Pastor, I heard you explain about that man named Bill. He said, I just heard for the first time how we got saved. He said, I need to finish the story for you, preacher. We went back home. We noticed on the back of that track, we lived several miles north of this town, but we noticed on the back of the track it said something about a Baptist church. We said we started looking for a Baptist church, and we found one. We started going. We got involved. I became a deacon after some time. He said, one night an evangelist came, started preaching to us about the need to win souls and reach the people. And he said, I went to the altar and knelt down and surrendered to be a preacher. He said, I went to Bible college. He said, Pastor, for the last five years, I've been pastoring a church in the state of Florida. All because of a man who could not speak did what he could to win people to Jesus. <laughs> Don't you reckon that if a guy that couldn't talk could produce the fruit of a man in the pastorate, don't you think the rest of us in this room could win somebody to Jesus? I'll tell you why we don't. We have all these excuses. Well, I'll do it later. I'll do it when I feel better. I'll do it when I'm smarter. I'll do it when I get a degree. I'll do it when I learn more. No, you never do it. Start where you are right now. While it's day. And then a very sober finish to the message the Lord gave His disciples. I must work. By the way, so must we. While it is day... Use what talents you have. The night cometh when no man can work. This almost sounds sacrilegious, but it's a true statement. Hear it carefully. There's going to come a time in history when not even Jesus Christ Himself can win anybody to the Lord. Think about that. It'll be over. Judgment will be pronounced. Eternity will begin. It will be all over. There's going to come a time when you and I can't win anybody to Christ. Our life is ended. Their life is ended. Night comes. I was preaching in a Southern California church down south of Los Angeles. <clears throat> I still remember that Sunday morning because the pastor had only been there two months. And he sat down with me and he showed me the statistics of the church prior to his arriving there as pastor. 
And one of the statistics he showed to me was that in the previous ten months prior to his coming there, they had only had twelve people down the aisle for salvation in the entire year. They had worked real hard, and now this is in the month of January, and having me come down had a special day, and a lot of visitors were there. When I gave the invitation that Sunday morning, in one service, praise the Lord, 26 people walked forward and got saved. That was double what they had done the entire year before in just one service. Boy, I was thrilled. I, I, not, not that I was had the big head or anything. I just, boy, I was just thanking God. I remember going outside of the front porch, looking out in their, over their yard and across the road, and there's some mountains that were out there. I was just sort of looking out there, kind of saying, well, praise the Lord. This is wonderful. Man, 26 saved. Glory to God. This is, can't wait to call my wife and tell her this is good news. I'm thrilled. While I was standing there with that rejoicing going on in my heart, a lady walked up to me. looked like she may have been 30, 32 years of age. And she said, Brother Davis, she said, today, while you were teaching Sunday school, telling about how you got called to preach in a church you went to and a school you went to, she said, you mentioned that you grew up and went to, went to school in Goodrich, Michigan. I said, that's right. She said, you mentioned that you played on the varsity football team there. I said, well, that's true. Play, play, from, from the time I was in ninth grade to the time I graduated out of high school, I played on the varsity football team there in Goodrich High School. She said, you know, you also said that you were saved in 1968 and that you graduated in 1970. She said, she said I'm asking these questions because I, she said, I've wondered something all my life. And she said, finally, I'm going get to get a chance to ask somebody. I said, well, what is it? She said, if I understand your story right, you were saved for two years while you went to high school. I said, I was. The last two years I went to high school, I, 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 I had gotten saved. She said, now, I've got to ask you this question. She said, did you know two boys that played on the same football squad that you were on the same years that you played? One of them was named uh, Vern. The other one was named Wayne. Did I know them? Good night. I went to a school... Kindergarten through 12th grade, we had 450 people. Little country school, uh, public school system way out in the country. We knew everybody. Not just knowing people, man, we were like a family. When she said, did I know them? It was like somebody pressed the replay button on my memory. I, I went back in time, almost transported there. I remembered my senior year. I remember it was a Friday. I recall that it was our homecoming football game with our arch rivals from Ortonville, Michigan. You guys ever played sports or something in school, you know what homecoming is like. Man, you would give your right arm to win the homecoming game. You gotta win. Boy, that was how we were working up to it. We practiced hard all week long. The coach had a couple of trick plays. He thought he'd pull out of the bag and maybe try to get a quick touchdown. And boy, we were ready to go. Man, we were excited. On that Friday, we were going to have a pep rally at 2.30. School got out at 3 o'clock. At 2.30, they're going to dismiss everybody to the gymnasium. We're going to have an old-fashioned pep rally. I mean, the elementary kids and the junior high kids and the high school kids and the cheerleaders would come out and then the team was going to come out and the coaches would be there. They're all going to be yelling and hollering and waving their pom-poms and yelling through those big uh, megaphone things. And Boy, it's going to be exciting. Their, their goal was to get as many people worked up about coming to the game as they could. And, of course, that night the queen was going to be crowned and the king and the Queen's Court and all that stuff that went on. We're excited. Remember, sixth hour, which was the last class right before we're going to dismiss to go to the pep rally, many of us in the high school had a study hall. Our study hall was held in the cafeteria, so we're in there in the cafeteria, those big old long tables, about 150 of us in there at one time, most of us upperclassmen. Boy, we're, nobody was studying. We were, we were dying, man. We're, we're going to have homecoming game night. Boy, we got to go. Well, part of the homecoming ceremonies uh, for the pep rally, we are all going to dress up completely in our uniforms. 
I mean, shoulder pads and all the pads and the jerseys and the pants and the shoes and, and the helmets. And we, we're going to come running out as they called our number and then introduce us, come running out on the gym. It was going to be thrilling. Well, Wayne and Vern, by the way, who were, who were first cousins, had forgotten part of their uniform. And more, they wanted to be part of that pep rally like any, any of those boys, man. You, you just got to be part of that pep rally because, you know, a cheerleader might like you or something if you are. And uh, they went to our high school principal, Mr. Stacy, and they said, Mr. Stacy, we forgot part of our uniform and pep rallies at 2.30. Would you mind if we went home and got, got the uniform so we can dress out the guys? You know, we don't want to miss the pep rally. Well... Wayne had driven to school for a number of years. His dad had signed all the, the forms, you know, allowing his son to drive. And the, the principal said, well, I think that'll be okay. They live just a couple of miles from the school. At 2.30 Friday afternoon, we heard that familiar sound over the intercom. You guys remember that noise? Always made a beep sound so you knew they were listening to you. If anybody ever got smart and eliminated that beep sound, they might be able to catch you talking. You know, as soon as it beeped, everybody shut up. Heard that beep sound, and thought, well, they're going to say something over the PA system. Probably say, all right, get ready for the pep rally. You report to the gymnasium. There was a long pause. Then, very out of character for our high school principal, who was a very stoic and strong and staunch and very non-emotional man, I heard the very emotional voice of Mr. Stacy come over the loudspeaker. He said, may I have your attention? He said, I have two announcements to make. He said, please listen to the entire announcement before you react. He said, first of all, the pep rally for this afternoon has been canceled. He said, now please listen so I, I can explain. He said, secondly... Homecoming game this evening has been canceled as well. He said, I'm afraid I have some very, very hard news for you students. He said, just a little while ago, Wayne and Vern were in a terrible automobile accident. And they've both been killed. He said, I didn't think anybody would care much about playing football tonight. By the way, he was right. I saw those cheerleaders and the girls in that cafeteria, about 150 of us in there, teenagers. I saw them get up out of their seats and just sort of walk over to the corner of the building and kind of put their arms around each other and begin to cry. I saw big old strong muscle-bound football players draped themselves over that table and began to cry. See, these were our buddies. Well, we played football together since we were in seventh grade and organized high school football programs. They're, they're gone? How could they be gone? I looked at that lady that was standing in front of me and I said, yes, ma'am, I, I remember Wayne, remember his cousin, remember him very well. They were my friends. She said, I thought you would remember them. She said, I've got to ask this question. I said, what? She said, did you ever have a chance to tell them about Jesus? She said, I've always wondered if they were Christians when they died. She said, when I heard you preaching this morning, you talked about being a Christian. She said, I, I just had to ask you. Did you ever have a chance to tell them about Jesus? She said, you see, they were my first cousins. Boy, I looked at her. 
was like she took a sledgehammer and hit me in the stomach. I said, yes, I, I had a lot of chances to tell them. But I never did. She said, oh, I was just hoping. Thank you. And she turned and walked to her car, drove out of the parking lot. You know, suddenly I wasn't rejoicing over the 26 who got saved that morning. All of a sudden I was realizing that night came. And I had not reached them for the Lord. Night is going to descend upon Lompoc someday. Night is going to descend upon mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and moms and dads and sons and daughters and neighbors and friends and co-workers. Night is going to descend in thick blackness. And it's going to be too late. Jesus fixed his attention upon the disciples and he said, Fellas, we've got to work. I must work. You must work. While it's day, use what talent you have. Because night is going to come. I've often wondered what it's going to be like in heaven at the great white throne judgment seat of Christ. When people march across there and God said we're going to be ruling and reigning with Him at that time. And someone comes by that we know and we love and God condemns them to hell because they didn't get saved. I've often wondered what it's going to be like when we look at them and realize that we never told them about Christ. It'll be too late for them to say, wait a minute, Lord, I got this New Testament. Let me go down and tell them real quick. It's too late then. Night cometh. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit knvbc.com for Christian music you can trust.